All right, well, we have been tracking with Israel through the wilderness, and uh, from the moment God brought them across the Red Sea out of Egypt, um, he has had this kind of one next goal in mind. He's preparing them for Mount Sinai. He's preparing them for the giving of his law. Um, Sinai is a huge deal. This is where the Lord is going to reveal himself to a whole new level. Um, He will give them the Ten Commandments and numerous other commandments about how to live as his holy people, how to approach a holy God and what that means. And it's a big enough deal that that before giving them this law, before just kind of handing it to them, he wants to prepare it prepare them for it. He wants to teach them what this is all about. And it's, again, not just Israel. We so often get tied up in knots over the law of God. What do we do with God's commandments? Uh, And we see this this battle. Is it salvation by faith or salvation by works? What, What role does obedience play in our salvation? What is the proper purpose and role and use of the law of God? and our obedience to it. And the answers are given so clearly right here in these accounts of Israel um, walking through the wilderness and the Lord testing them. Um, Turn with me to Exodus 17. Um, That's where we'll spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab you a Bible, and we want you to have God's Word open in your lap. Uh, Again, I have nothing for you. This is all about God's word. I I don't stand up here to hand truth down, um, but to study God's word together with you, um, that we would be uh, challenged and transformed by it together. So just a quick recap, going back into chapter 15 and and 16, um, the Lord tested them at Marah, brought them out, and there was water there, but the water was bitter. It was undrinkable. And the Lord was teaching them, don't don't look to the wilderness to find your joy, to find your life. But then as Moses uh, obeyed God's direction and he he threw the log into the water, making the water sweet, and he gave them a handful of commands that we're not sure exactly what, but the, the promise was, if you obey my law, if you follow my law, it will make your lives sweet. God's law is the path toward joy and blessing. From there, he led them deeper into the wilderness and they ran out of food. And once again, they rebelled against God. They failed to keep his commands and his law, saying this time it would even be better for us to have been killed by God in the wilderness, with the, or killed by God in, in Egypt with the Egyptians. And the Lord responded to their, their sinful, rebellious complaint by, by giving them favor, by feeding them, saying, uh, have this anyway, in spite of your rebellion. And he's teaching them that his favor is not based in their law keeping. He commanded them to rest in him. And of course, as we jump forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus unpacking this, that he is the bread of life. And there God gives them the first commandment of the Sabbath, that that they would rest in him as this sign between them and God that that in all of their work to honor God, to obey his laws, it is ultimately not the law that makes them holy, but it's God who makes them holy. And that to rest in his grace. So the law gives life and joy as we walk in it, but, but the law is also showing us that we fall short. It's showing us our need for God's grace, and he's displaying his favor to those who don't deserve it. And that leaves us with one last gaping question. What about justice? What about the consequences of breaking God's law? And, and I think our culture does not get justice. We, we love um, just brushing over things. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So for God to say the wicked are righteous is an abomination to God. That ought to make us really uncomfortable. He hates that. It's not okay for for guilty people to go free. Justice must be done. You see, as as God lays out his law, what he's laying out is an extension of who he is, 
right? The law is, is good and just and right and true because he is good and just and right and true. And if we take that law lightly, if we just kind of discard it, if we sweep law-breaking under the rug and there's no consequences, what does that say about God? What does that say about his glory? It says that it's of, of little consequence, that God is unimportant. If you disobey a child's orders, nothing happens. If you disobey your parents' orders, you might get a spank. If you disobey a police officer, you might get arrested. If you disobey a king, you might find yourself beheaded. You see, the honor of the person that we offend against is directly related and and displayed in the right punishment for that offense. That's why, uh, for that same reason, you get um, nothing for killing a spider. Um, You might get life in prison or even the death penalty for killing a person. Because the being that you've offended against is of objectively greater value. So for God to look at the Israelites and their sin and their rebellion against him and then give them favor rather than justice, it's unbelievable. It doesn't make sense. It's not okay. To treat them as if they've done nothing wrong is, is to dishonor himself. Is for him to say that my glory, my, my weightiness is of little value, little significance. And so people will often ask, can't God just forgive? Can't he just kind of sweep it under the rug? Can't he just let it go? And the answer is no. Not without sacrificing his glory. And if you know anything about this God, if you've been tracking with us through this uh, account of Exodus you know that it's all been about his glory. God is so dedicated to the display of his glory and his mighty power and and showing that he is worthy of worship. And so the fact that he shows favor rather than justice on those who have sinned, to those who have said to his face, we would rather be your enemies than your friend, is absolutely dumbfounding. How can this be? How is this okay? It, It leaves us wondering. How will his glory be vindicated? How will this be set right? And so this question ought to be haunting us as we move into chapter 17. And he's going to look at verses, we're going to look at verses 1 to 7 this morning. Uh, A nice manageable chunk after some big passages. Um, Let me read just verses 1 to 3 for us first. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The first thing I think we see in this passage is how the Lord gives leadership into suffering. He leads them into this trial directly, intentionally. It was the Lord who commanded them to leave the wilderness of sin, where they were, to move to this place called Rephidim. Um, Once again, we have no idea where this is at. Um, We have no context to put it in. And and yet, as they get there, um, they're expecting water, it seems, and there is none. Possibly this is why they fight with the Amalekites in the next chapter, or in the next uh, verses. Maybe the Amalekites were holding them away from the water source. We don't really know. But there's no water. And so they begin to quarrel against Moses. And the word quarrel there is new to these series of stories. It's stronger than we've seen yet. So far, they've, they've grumbled against Moses. They've grumbled against the Lord. Um, this is a little more aggressive. Now they're making accusations. And they demand, give us water to drink. Similar to what happened in chapter 16, Moses points out, um, your quarreling with me uh, is not actually about me you're actually testing the Lord. It's he who is in control here. I'm, I'm just the messenger. They cry out again, why did you bring us up out of this place to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? 
It's interesting the language used here. Before they grumbled against the Lord, now Moses says, you're testing the Lord. And that's a very intentionally chosen word, and we'll see that continue to build. It's the same word that the Lord used back in 16 verse 4, saying, I will test them to see if they will walk in my ways or not. God was putting his people through these trials to show them their own hearts, to test them, to purify them, to bring to light their unfaithfulness, how their words didn't match their hearts. But now they've turned the tables. They're testing God. They're challenging God by disobeying him and then watching to see, will he still bless us? Will he still be faithful if we are unfaithful in spite of our flagrant sin? Notice the command here again, give us water to drink. We demand it of you. You owe it to us, God. The word test, there's a legal term. They're litigating against God. They are suing God to prove to them his faithfulness. Let's get this out of the way. The Lord is perfectly in his rights and in his place and is actually even good and gracious to test us. But we have no place, no grounds, no right and are totally out of line to test him. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about our hearts being flawed, twisted, marred by sin. We had a bunch of grade five girls at our place for a birthday party. And you hear this conversation happening. Oh no, you're a good person. You always follow your heart. I just want to explode. No, don't follow your heart. That is horrible, horrible advice. It does not make you a good person. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he goes on from there. Because of that, Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind to give every man according to his ways. The Lord tests us because our hearts are wicked and and twisted. They're they're, They're changing and inconsistent. The Lord, on the other hand, is unchanging. He is completely consistent, flawless in his character. There's no need to test the Lord. There's no need to ask again, are you the same today as you were yesterday? Will you actually carry through on what you've said To even raise the question of God's character is is already out of line. If you remember the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, kind of parallels Israel. Israel's brought through the Red Sea and then into the wilderness for testing. And Jesus comes through the Jordan River and his baptism is brought into the wilderness for testing. And, and, And we see again this clear parallel, Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. The devil took him to the holy city and we see him on the pinnacle uh, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to them again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan quotes these promises that were spoken about the Messiah, how the Lord would protect him and provide for him. And and Satan says, make him prove it. Join me in doubting God and putting him to the test to see if he will actually follow through. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, a verse that's actually referring to this story right here in Exodus 17. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa is the name that this place is given later in the text. Believer, the Lord will lead you into suffering. The Lord will lead you into trials and temptations as your shepherd. He's going to walk you into those things. He did it with Israel. He did it with all of the saints that we see throughout the biblical account. He did it with Jesus. He'll do it with you. And we have two options. We can trust him, walking in obedience to him, resting in his goodness, trusting in his character that it is unchanging, that he is good no matter what my eyes see, no matter what my flesh feels. Or we can test him. Don't worry about obedience. It's not important right now. What I need is God to answer me. Demand, God, give me this. Provide for me. 
Take away this trial. Give me water to drink. Do it, Lord. A clear example of this in our day is, is the prosperity gospel. It's not about walking in faithful obedience and, and trusting God in His character through trials and hardship. It's a teaching that says if you have faith, God will just give you everything. You can demand it. He will make you healthy. He will make you wealthy. He will never let you become uncomfortable. It's encouraging people. Test God in a, in a wicked way. And they look for the blessings of God according to their demands, according to their human definition of what is good, rather than according to their humble faith and obedience, walking in obedience to God's command according to His definition of what is truly good. And, and that good often comes through trials and hardship and need. So don't go there. Don't test God. Don't think that your experiences or your wisdom or your desires are the true test of the goodness of God. I don't know what trials face you right now, but do you believe in the goodness and the wisdom of God in it? Do you believe that whatever comes, it's from His hand as your good shepherd leading you, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful, even if it's terrifying? God's grace this week, I, I got to feel just a, just a sliver of that. I got to kind of walk this out in my own heart. It's a minor thing, not a big deal. But most of you, I think, have heard the story. This last week, I spent all day Tuesday working on preparing this sermon, digging through the text, and, and I had everything that I used, my, my laptop, all my good commentaries, my, my pens, everything loaded up and, and into my one laptop bag. And I, I got home and I set the laptop bag on the driveway and went to check the mail, got distracted chatting with my neighbor and left it out there. And uh, within the next hour or two, it, it walked away, lost it all. Um, a lot of hard work, uh, a number of things that are fairly precious to me, um, gone. And again, I mean, it's nowhere near a cancer diagnosis or the news of an unfaithful spouse, um, anything close to that. But, but it wasn't fun. And I had to wrestle with my heart on this. Having spent all day in this passage, it forced me the next day to ask, what do I really believe about God? Do I trust Him? And there's fear there. Am I going to be able to put a sermon together without my, my precious tools? And there's loss of, of things that I treasured in this world that I love. Do, do I, am I still content having Christ? Do I believe that God leads me into trials? Where does my heart go? It's tempting to test God. God, bring it back. Send it back. Uh, he could. Absolutely, he could without a, a problem recreate my computer on my desk for all that it matters. He could have done it without any sweat. Am I willing to trust him, rest in his unchanging character, walk in obedience, trusting that, that that's where blessing is going to be? I've asked him to return it. I know he could. But understanding, he's my shepherd. He's brought me here for a reason. This is what I need. This is good for me to be separated from these things, whether for a time or for forever. Don't test him. Don't make demands as if he needs to prove his character to you. Um, trust him. Ask for what you desire, but do it out of humble trust. I, I was just I had to search the words to that last song that we were singing or earlier. Uh, yes, I will. What an amazing declaration. That's it. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy. That's what it means to trust in God through trials. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You will not fail me now in the waiting. The same God who is never late is working all things out. His character doesn't change. It doesn't depend on my experience and my circumstances. He's good. Just trust him in it. That's hard to do, but we're consistently called back to that. As we go through this story, though, we see that Israel failed to do that. And rather than trusting in God, they test him. They accuse him. They put him on trial. 
And the Lord uses even that to continue to teach them about his law, teach them about himself. And, and so to show them that not only does the Lord give leadership into suffering, but the Lord gives life through sacrifice. I'll pick up at verse, uh, verse 4 here. So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so we see this quarreling against Moses, this threatening grows to the point where they're, they're ready to even stone him. And Moses cries out to the Lord. And his judicial courtroom language uh, begins to build. They have launched their lawsuit, their litigation against God. Prove yourself to me. And the Lord says to Moses, pass before the people, take with you the elders of Israel. Essentially, the Lord is saying, okay, you want to play courtroom? We'll play courtroom. Set it up, Moses. Gather the elders, the, the, the legal overseers of the people. Get up in front of the people. Take your staff with you, the staff with which you struck the Nile. The staff was the symbol of the Lord's royal authority and specifically the symbol of his righteous judgment that was poured out on Egypt. It came through the staff. In verse 6, he says, I will stand before you. Again, this is courtroom language. The Lord, the perfect holy God is saying, I will be seated as the defendant, as the accused in front of a wicked people. Essentially, he's saying, you're right. The law has been broken, so let's go to court. Justice must be done. Somebody must die. But once again, it's Israel that is guilty before the Lord. And once again, he's going to show them his favor instead of his wrath. But this time he's going to answer the how question. How can it be that he can let them off the hook yet again? How can the guilty go free without dishonoring God, without devaluing his glory? How can he forgive without saying that his law and his glory are to be taken lightly? And, and the answer is right here. Moses, take the staff, the emblem of my justice and my judgment, the staff that, that the people deserve for their unbelief, for their accusations against me. But rather than striking them as they deserve, strike the rock on which I stand. Rather than taking the rod of my wrath and bringing death to this wicked, guilty people, setting things straight, vindicating my glory and my honor by their destruction, my glory will be upheld. My wrath will still be poured out and punishment will be paid, but it will be spent on the rock. Poured out full strength, but not against them, against the rock. And out of the rock, this life-giving water flows. God's blessing comes to give life to those who deserve death. So preparing them for receiving the law, the Lord is teaching them. First, the law is good. Obedience to the law is the path of joy and blessing and life. And secondly, that he gives grace to those who cannot keep the law. He gives his favor to those who will rest in him. And then thirdly, the law will be upheld. That favor must come at a cost. There's a price to be paid. God's wrath poured out on the rock. But of course, God's wrath poured out on a rock doesn't prove much. It's a rock. That doesn't really vindicate his justice or display his glory, but the rock is a symbol. It's a picture pointing forward to a greater reality. And of course, standing where we stand in the scope of redemptive history, we can guess at where this is going. Um, but in case any doubt, 1 Corinthians 10.4 makes it explicitly clear. Talking about this story right here, Paul writes, 
of Israel. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's Jesus. He's the rock. Christ Jesus is the rock of God, struck by the rod of God's wrath to pay the penalty and to vindicate his law and his glory so that lawbreakers and God dishonorers might go free. I'd be given favor instead of wrath. It's Isaiah 53 playing out right in front of them. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus died on the cross, that physical death is not the main event. It was not the physical death that made Jesus sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not the physical death that fulfilled the law of God. But as Jesus hung on that cross, he was not only struck by the rods of Roman guards, he was struck by the rod of God's wrath, God's righteous judgment. The vindication of his law and his glory is played out. The proper punishment for sin for all those who would receive grace The punishment that would have taken you and I as as finite beings an eternity to experience is poured out full strength, not one drop lacking onto Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's how the guilty go free. Not by sweeping it under the rug, not by by devaluing God and his law, but by upholding that law with a substitute. So once God's wrath had been fully inflicted on him, the earthquake had passed, the darkness had lifted. The guards, wanting to know if Jesus was fully dead, reached up with a spear and they pierced Jesus' side. And, and John 19, 40, 34 tells us that blood and water flowed. He's the rock. Life-giving, cleansing water pours out from him. He died that we might be forgiven. That's why Jesus knowing all of this imagery, says in in John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come find life. Come find forgiveness. Find their infinite punishment for sins fully and completely paid in me. The Lord gives life through a substitute. It's a death in our place. Those of you who've been around for a little while, you know that I'm fond of asking believers, what is the gospel? The gospel is the the heart and soul of, of what it means to be a Christian. It's our life. It's our only hope. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It's, it's, it's the one thing we're about as a church. So what is the gospel? We need to be absolutely clear and confident on that question. We need to be able to answer that. And this idea of substitution is right at the heart of it. The wrath of God that I deserve poured out on Jesus so that I might go free. Grace purchased at the cross. Him struck that I might go free. Do you come to that fountain? Have you come to drink from him? Do you understand this substitution? Have you trusted in that gift? Not just asking God to to sweep your sin under the rug, but understanding the sacrifice made in your place. You stand before God on that final day of judgment. And in the presence of a holy God, all your sins laid bare. The sum total of your guilt in the blinding light of God's perfection, will be so much darker than you can even imagine. And God says, why should I let you, a sinner, into my perfect 
heaven. How on earth could you enter in here? What will you say? How will you answer? The thought of I was a good person will be so absolutely unimaginable as you see what true goodness looks like. The idea of my good deeds outweighing my bad will be absurd as you understand that sin is not weighed and balanced, it's punished. And worst yet, Just asking God to forgive it, just asking God to sweep it under the rug would be the greatest offense yet against his glory. A statement that he should set aside his glory for the sake of your sin. Sin cannot, will not be overlooked. There is one hope, there is one answer to that eternally significant question. It's Jesus. To say, I deserved hell. I rightly deserve eternal damnation, but all of the punishment that I so rightly deserve was placed on him, was paid by him. The rock of my salvation in my place condemned he stood. He's our only hope. The Lord gives us this leadership into suffering and the Lord gives life through the substitute. Then finally, the Lord gives us a lesson through these stories of the past. 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, speaking of this story, that the rock is Christ. He goes on in verse 11 say, now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. These things are written down for our instruction. So what lesson do we take from this? What do we learn from this? Well, the lesson is spelled out clearly in the last verses. And actually, it's an example that comes up continually through Scripture time and time again. Let me read verse 7, and then we'll unpack it. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's tragic. This place is named so that future generations will remember what happened here, so that every time they pass by, they'll know this is Massa and Meribah. This place has two names. Meribah means quarreling and Massa means testing. The lasting impression of this place, the amazing display of the grace of God poured out and the lasting impression is that Israel did not believe. Yes, they saw the Lord's glory on display. They saw how he would strike the rock instead of them. They drank the physical water and they physically lived, but they did not understand. They didn't take it to heart. There was no lasting effect on their lives. The people continued to quarrel against Moses and to test the Lord time and time again. Until finally, they stood at the edge of the promised land, preparing to to defeat the people who lived in this glorious land flowing with milk and honey and to enter into the promise that God had given them. And rather than trusting him to be faithful and to bring them in as he promised he would, proving himself over and over again, again they test him and they quarrel against him. And they accuse God again of bringing them out into the wilderness to die. Numbers 14 tells this account. The Lord finally says to Moses, fine, fine. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall enter into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Shocking. We do this to our kids, right? 
I never get to have that. Okay, now you're never going to get it. Right? You complained about it. You said it. Then it's true. And that's your punishment. They rebelled and they rebelled and they rebelled and they said, Lord, did you bring us out here to die? And finally he said, yes. Yes, I did. Enough. You've complained about dying in the wilderness. Now you will die in the wilderness. And they didn't enter the promised land. They did not enter God's rest. He fulfilled those promises in the next generation. Where'd that rebellion start? It started right here where they tested the Lord at Meribah and Massa. So again, this moment that should, should be the greatest display of God's mercy, striking the rock instead of the people and, and this grand display of how his justice will be upheld without their destruction stands as a memorial to the rebellion of the people. How they who were given so, so much threw it all away. So Deuteronomy 6, 16, the verse that Jesus quoted warns. Now this is, this is given on the, the edge of the promised land the second time around. Moses is handing them off now to Joshua to take the next generation into the promised land and, and even Moses will die outside of the promised land. And here's what he says to them. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Don't go back there. Don't follow in the ways of the generation before you. Don't test the Lord. Rather, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. See the parallel there, the contrast? Don't don't test him. Trust him. Walk in obedience. That's the path of blessing. Psalm 95 picks this story up again. Verses 7 to 11 for He is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did at Meribah. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore on my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Turn with me to Hebrews, if you will. It's picked up again. Numerous places in the New Testament and Hebrews is a significant one. Hebrews chapter three. You'll notice verses 7 to 11, quote Psalm 95, that passage that I just read. Don't test. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion at Massa and Meribah. And he goes on to apply this to us then. Starting in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, in light of what happened to the people of Israel. Take care, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we've come to share, sorry, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's a stark warning, church. Don't go wandering off on your own. Don't don't think this is okay. Don't get comfortable with sin. It will will deceive you and harden your heart against the Lord. And get this. You have come to share in Christ if, if you hold fast your original confidence to the end. Israel continued doubting and testing the Lord. They challenged him to prove his grace to them while they continued to walk in rebellion and disobedience. And they were shut out from the promised land because of it. Let's just be clear. If Christ is the bread and Christ is the rock and the wilderness of sin is is this life on earth, sorry, not just the wilderness of sin, the, the, the wilderness wandering, then the promised land is heaven. Don't think that a relationship with the church 
but lip service to the Lord, just saying that you're a Christian, will bring you through to heaven. Don't think that you can make a a commitment to Christ and then walk off and, and live your own life of rebellion and come into the promised land. Hebrews goes on to say, picking up in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Talking about these stories. Was it not all of those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So get this, the people who walked through the Red Sea, the people who tasted the sweet water at Mara, the people who ate manna in the wilderness of sin and drank from the rock at Meribah did not see the promised land. They didn't receive God's salvation. They were so close. They saw his grace. They, they tasted of what it was like to be part of the people of God to some extent but they had an exterior experience of the grace of God and didn't produce true faith. They were not saved. They did not receive the final promise from the Lord. Now, why? Ultimately, because of their unbelief, Hebrews tells us. They never had true saving faith. How do we know that? That unbelief showed itself in continuing disobedience. They tested the Lord saying, save us like you promised. But they showed that they didn't actually trust him to save them as they continued to walk in disobedience. There's no life change. There's no transformation. Church, if you hear his voice, Today, if you hear his voice and you are hearing his voice as his word is read, don't harden your heart as they did at Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. They went astray in their hearts. They didn't trust the Lord. They didn't live in his way and in his wrath they were rejected by him. Don't put the Lord to the test. Don't think that you can claim him as Lord and God. Say say some little prayer. Go to church and kind of journey along with the people of God. And that'll be enough. My exterior experience of the grace of God will get me through. There are those who would say that that we're saved by faith and faith alone. and, And I absolutely agree with that. But they would go on to say that 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 means you can have faith in Christ and be saved and continue to live any way you choose and still be saved. It doesn't matter what you do from there on out. And they're right. We're not saved by our obedience. We're not saved by any actions that we do, but only by the grace of God through faith alone. But they're dead wrong about what faith is if they think that faith doesn't play out into obedience. Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's as simple as that. Why do you call me master and you don't obey? It's lip service. It means nothing. I'm following Jesus, but Jesus is walking that way and I'm walking this way. You're not following Jesus. It's that simple. Don't test the Lord. Trust him by obeying him. Trust him by putting your life into his hands. If what you call faith doesn't produce a changed life, doesn't bear fruit of of obedience increasing in the Lord, doesn't play out in, in repentance and growth, then it's a false faith. It's a deficient faith. It's a faith that will not save. It's tragic 
that people would journey with the church and, and drink from the rock, hear these messages with their ears and not have that true transformed faith that produces salvation. And it's this conversation that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me as well. We'll spend a little time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 And it's this conversation that that leads him into talking about communion, but this is where it starts. The importance of examining yourself before you partake of the bread and the cup. This matters. Before you you eat the bread of life saying, I am one of those who's, who's trusted in Jesus. Before you partake of this water from the rock, examine yourself. Because there ought to be evidence. There ought to be some fruit coming from that. 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read a lengthy portion just starting at verse 1 and I'll just kind of let Paul speak for himself here. This is Paul speaking to us, church, as we prepare for communion. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock that was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to Exodus 32 and the golden calf. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Examine yourself, church. Those are hard words. But God, I went to church every Sunday. God, I was baptized. And they came through the Red Sea. God, I heard your word preached for 40 years on earth. Yeah, they, they ate the bread. They drank from the rock. Did you trust me? Did you truly rest in me? Did you walk that faith out in, in obedience? I'd love to unpack the rest of chapter 10, but it's all driving to this same place. He makes this very pointed down in chapter 11. Starting in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, speaking of communion, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are ill and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Judge yourself. Look at your life. Examine it. He goes on to say in in chapter uh, 13 of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, if indeed Christ lives in you. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under the judgment of God. And it's a dangerous thing. It's to test the Lord, to to partake of communion, to demand God's grace without actually trusting in Him in obedience. And again, not perfection, but growing, repenting, trusting in Him and His goodness. And it's that faith that that produces evidence, that produces this 
transformation that, that plays out into joyful obedience as we wrestle with our sin nature and continue to rest more and more in Christ. But if there's no growing obedience from the heart, your taking of communion is simply testing the Lord and it's, it's dangerous. But in all of that, let's not forget the good news. Let's not miss what Israel missed at Mara. He calls us, everyone. He calls the most hardened and rebellious, come, come and drink. Come and rest in the rock of your salvation. Come and, and see your sin. Approach it with humility. Own it. Humbly come as the, as the father with the sick son comes to Jesus crying out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Rather than testing God, trust him. And there's grace. Full pardon. He's willing to take the rod that was destined for you, that you deserve, and to pour that wrath out on Christ that even the most wicked, the most guilty, the most rebellious can be saved. There's full pardon. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning. I'm just going to give you some time to humble yourself for the, the worship team can come back up. Test yourself. Ask the hard questions. Do I see this grace at work in me? Does my faith have more than lip service? Am I trusting the Lord or testing the Lord? Do I demand His grace as I carry on in sin? Or am I willing to actually put my life in His hands and trust that His commands are good and, and walk in them, striving after that obedience? And um, again, we're just going to have a moment of silence. And uh, after that, as we begin to sing, then the communion elements will be handed out. Just hang on to them and we'll partake together. So um, let's just take a few minutes to sit quietly with the Lord. Test your heart. Put your soul bare before him. And let me encourage you. If you have to look and say, I don't think I'm passing this test. I don't, I don't see that growing obedience in my life. Then, then come to the rock. Come to Christ. Trust in him. Maybe now for the first time and lay that down.